Thank you, Father, for the, the wonder of uh, divine providence that you have called us to this place to come and encounter you in a way that we don't encounter you throughout the week, to come and encounter you together, to come and encounter you in corporate worship, to come and hear your word, to come and rejoice with one another, to come to the feast of God. And so, Lord, as we come, we are completely dependent upon you to work in us to be receptive to your holy word, even as uh, the Israelites in the desert were completely dependent upon you for that manna every morning. And so we look to you now and we pray, O Lord, that uh, you would work in our hearts, guide and direct us and allow us to receive your word, uh, even as you have given it to us for the purpose of building up your saints and bringing people unto yourself. So give us your spirit, guide and direct the preaching of your word, the teaching of your word, and guide our hearts that you may be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking this morning as uh, we get ready to get started here on this passage, uh, you know, uh, I brought, I, I, I don't reg all the time read this Bible, but this is the uh, latest and greatest Sproul study Bible, ESV, you know, Reformation study Bible, and it's wonderful. But this thing, if you drop it on your toe, you're going to the emergency room. You know what I'm saying? So I got one a little lighter that I carry around and, and use on a regular basis, but uh, the reason I mention that is because we were on the way to church and, you know, getting the kids in the car and everything and uh, driving on the way down uh, down H3 on the way here. And I looked over at Christian. I said, where's my uh, Bible and my sermon notes? And I was thinking to myself, did I leave it on the roof of the car? Because that might really hurt somebody. <laughs> That's the way to spread the word, but not the way I was trying to spread it this morning. Uh, but thankfully, we didn't have it on the roof. Uh, all right. So as we're looking at this passage uh, always, uh, as I'm considering the word, uh, this is something that uh, Brandon and I learned uh, at uh, Westminster um, when we were there. Uh, we have to look, look at the context, right? If, you can't. You have to consider the context. If you don't consider the context, then you're going to be prone to make the word of God say something that it doesn't. And so you have to look at the context. And of course, there is so much in this passage that pushes us back to the Old Testament, right? So many allusions to the Old Testament. Even as we're uh, reading this morning, uh, it said here, I remember the words, and you you draw the connection, you know, the Jews grumbled. They grumbled, and it's like a couple times, and it jumped out at me. It was like, yeah, that sounds familiar. What what Old Testament passage do I want to go to, right? Uh, But particularly, when you think of this idea of manna and the bread, right, comes to mind the, what happened in the Old Testament that Brandon mentioned this morning. But I want you to consider this. Jesus had just fed 5,000 men plus women and children with a few loaves and a couple of fish just, just before this. You know, a mighty miracle. It's the only miracle aside from the resurrection that is mentioned in all four Gospels. Remember that, right? He just, after he fed them, uh, he, he, he said to the disciples, go to the other side. Get out, let's get out of here, man. We need a little break. And they went across the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And he went off by himself for a little bit, probably to pray. And then he walked across the lake and met them out there in the middle of the gale, right? Another miracle. And he brought them safe to the other side. And now these Jews find them over there. So he just did some pretty amazing things. 
And we take it for granted, right? We're like, okay, we've read it. We know the story, and we were exposed to it, most of us, many of us as little kids. And, but these are amazing things, right? These are amazing things. And another note that John makes here as he's getting into this context, he, he reminds us that it was the time of the Passover. All this is affecting what's going on here. Now, remember the now Passover, you know, for us, we're not Jewish, so we don't celebrate the Passover in the same way, right? But we do celebrate the Passover, don't we? God's grace and fulfillment, the Passover, is actually fulfilled in the Lord's Supper, right? And when Christ came to die for our sins. And the Passover was a powerful time for the Jews because, and very important, you know, we have what? Fourth of July, right? Independence Day. Okay, we celebrate every summer, and that's pretty cool. And most people don't even know what it's about. If you ask them, you know, who did we, how did we get our freedom, or who did we fight against, or whatever, and they're like, what? Uh, I don't know, France? I don't know, the Chinese? I don't know, right? It's embarrassing. We don't even know our own holidays, right? Uh, but for the Jews, it wasn't just a, a political holiday. I mean, of sorts it was, because they were delivered from the Egyptians, right? But it was also a religious holiday, okay? Like Christmas and Easter and the 4th of July all rolled into one. That's kind of what was going on in their hearts and minds at the time. And they're celebrating this deliverance, this great deliverance from Egypt, this terrible oppressor, this mighty empire. And yet, where do they find themselves right now? Being oppressed again by another mighty empire, by the Romans this time. And they're thinking, God, do it again, right? Deliver us from these people. You did it in the past, you can do it. So there was a lot of political rumblings. They're looking for this deliverance. And Jesus just came along and did a few miracles. Hmm, maybe he's the one, right? All that is feeding into this context. And then, of course, we have the story of the manna, which comes up in this, and the bread in the Old Testament, where uh, the desert there and, the, and what happened, and, and God's amazing provision. You know, God, the Jews, they, they were set free from Egypt, all the mighty miracles, you know, powerful miracles, leading up to the Passover itself, where the firstborn of Egypt, they were all taken by the angel of death. Can't even imagine that. And they were delivered. Pharaoh threw them out. And then he said, I don't think so. I want you back. And then he, they had the Red Sea event where the Egyptians were destroyed. They made it through all that. And God said, I'm going to give you the law. He gave them the law. And then he sent them to the promised land, right? Go take it. We can't do that. There are giants over there. And they are big cities, you know. Why would we do that? That's insane. What are you, nuts, Joshua? And God said, okay, fine. You guys do not have faith. You can wander around in the desert for 40 years until you're all gone and dead, and we will send the next generation in. But he sustained them for 40 years with what? With the bread from heaven, right? They grumbled again. What are we going to eat? And he said, how about banana souffle? Banana burgers. I remember the old Keith Green song, you know. Everything was banana, right? So you got to have banana cream pie. Oh, what are we having today? Eat banana something, banana burgers. Okay, good stuff. He sustained them for 40 years. I can't even imagine that. You know, 40 years is a long time, right? So all that's in their mind as they're thinking about what's going on here in the conversation. That's all the context. But I want you to turn your attention to this first, first uh, verse here. And this was fascinating, actually, uh, moving into verse 26. Notice the first thing. This is my first point, and we'll have a couple more if, if the Lord guides me in that direction. Uh, 
I've already been assured by Justin that if I start going Pentecostal, um, he's going to cut the mic, so I'll have to raise my voice. I got a little bit Baptist, a little bit of Pentecostal, and a little bit of Presbyterian in there, so you better watch out. Um, all right, well, listen to this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when, do you, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. As I was reflecting just on these couple of verses here, I find it interesting in my own experience. You may have had this experience too. What's interesting is they come to Jesus with a question, right? And he doesn't answer the question. Not in the way they are expecting. He answers the question with a truly, truly. I don't know if you've ever done that. You come, you know, why do you come to Jesus, right? You come to Jesus and you ask him maybe certain questions and you want certain answers. And, and especially this happens oftentimes in troubled times and difficult times in life. We come to Jesus expecting certain things. Answer our questions, Lord. And he comes to us and says, uh, you're not asking the right question. <laughs> truly, truly, this is what your, what your need is. We come to evaluate him. He ends up evaluating us because he is the Lord, and that is the way it is supposed to work. This is a fascinating thing that happens. Uh, you know, there were uh, two, at least two famous people, and maybe more, I'm sure, two I'm aware of. A man named Lee Strobel, you may have heard of him, a man named Josh McDowell. Both of these uh, men became apologists for the Lord, and uh, they didn't start out life that way. You know, uh, they both sought to investigate and disprove, essentially, the claims of the New Testament. Well, I'm going to prove them wrong. You know, these Christians, I'm going to, I'm going to show you. And uh, what, did, what did they come to? They came to the realization in God's providence that the New Testament was true, that Jesus was Lord, and they became great apologists for God. Think about the Apostle Paul and his journey. How did he start out? Wandering around, you know, I'm going to find those pesky Christians and I'm going to turn them over to the We're going to beat them. We're going to, we're going to get this. We're going to stamp this out. And yet as he pursues these Christians, Jesus says, okay, Paul, how about you come to me, encounter me? The risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He made the, the desert sun, you know, seem like it was nothing compared to the brightness of Jesus in his resurrected form. And Paul then comes to Christ. And what happens to him? He becomes the Apostle Paul, uh, the most famous Christian evangelist in the history of the church. This is how God often works. And so we must remember when we bring our questions to Jesus, whatever they are, that he is in charge. And you may have questions going on in your life right now. I deal with uh, Marines all the time, sailors coming to me, and they're asking, you know, chaps, I need some help here. I'm in a jam. I don't know where to go, right? And they have a question on their mind, and we talk about that, and then uh, inevitably we get around to, okay, what is God doing here? What is his agenda for what's happening here? What is he trying to teach you? Do you see, you see how that's... That's a little bit different. Same situation, but totally different perspective. And Jesus won't let us get away with being his interrogator. Because he's the Lord and we're not. And he's the one that's here to save us. 
So remember that as you're walking with Jesus. That Jesus is in charge. Let him drive the conversation that you have with him. You know, prayer, I love, I mean, prayer is fantastic, right? But as you are praying, remember to let Jesus guide the conversation, right? Don't just ask God for what you want. Say, Lord, you guide my prayers. You guide this relationship. Give me what I need, not necessarily what I want. Because sometimes the two aren't quite lined up. But Jesus was gracious to him. The next point, I, oh, actually, I want to mention a movie. I, mean, I know, I'm not a, we all watch some movies, but you know, there's one that's a fantastic one about how we sometimes seek Jesus and we get unexpected surprises. Uh, about a year ago, I wrote, watched a movie called Risen. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's a it's, it's, you know, it's Hollywood stuff. I don't know who made it, but, but it's a fantastic uh, movie about a man who is supposed, you know, it's fiction, so they made it up. This man is the centurion who is tasked with making sure that Jesus is dead at the cross, okay? He's a warrior, like many of you in here. He's all, you know, all about destroying the enemies of Rome and everything else. And he goes and he makes sure, per Pilate's order, that, that Jesus is dead. And then Jesus' body disappears, and these disciples are running around saying he's resurrected. And Pilate says to this same man, I want you to go find the body and put an end to this mess. <laughs> and he begins to seek out the body of Jesus. And in his search, he encounters the risen Jesus Christ. And it's a very profound movie because it, even though obviously there's some, some fiction there, right? This is what happens. We, we are set out to prove that Jesus is dead. <laughs> you know, we don't really want him. We want him to be tame and over here. And yet when we encounter the risen Christ, we go, life is changed forever. Everything has changed. It cannot be the same. Nothing can be the same when you encounter the risen So consider that. Maybe look at that movie. Consider how God is working in your life in unexpected ways. Look for the joyous surprise that might be coming in unexpected ways. Look for him to challenge your heart. Instead of being his inquisitor, let him be your inquisitor. He's a gentle one. And he will ask the questions that are most important to our souls. For my second point, I just want to look for a minute at this, and this is something we have to consider as we're reflecting on this passage. Look at what Jesus says there. He says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. What's fascinating about that is how Jesus not only turns the table on them and begins asking them some questions, or point, but he points out what's going on in their hearts, right? How often when we come to Christ, we not only uh, are maybe seeking the wrong things, but we, we're really seeking things of less value than we should, right? Even good things, when they replace Christ and when they're not centered on him, can become bad. I mean, think about it. You remember the question and answer with Peter, right? Before Jesus went to the cross, and, and Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. And Peter's like, no, that's not going to happen, right? 
Ordinarily, I mean, I, I don't know. That'd probably be a good thing, wouldn't it? I don't want somebody to die. Jesus, you're the master. I don't want you to die. That's not going to happen. Not on my watch. And Jesus says to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. Because this is the path. This is why I came, is to go to that cross. Jesus reveals that his motives maybe weren't pure. Why weren't they pure? Because he thought he was in charge instead of Jesus being in charge. And so for us, you know, as we think about what we're really seeking from Jesus, only you can answer that. And I'm not just talking about somebody coming to Christ. I'm talking about as Christians, after we're Christians, we can come to Christ and, and, and seek things maybe that we don't need or seek things in a way where it becomes the number one priority. I mean, look at our lives. I had to examine my own heart. You know, I, I remember when I first became a Christian, it was like, okay, I... I'd give up, I mean, I'd give up a leg, I'd give up, I'd give up my life, I'd give up everything. I wanted Jesus to be glory. That was it. No ifs, ands, or buts. And then, guess what? You get married. And now you're like, am I willing to sacrifice my wife? And then you have kids. Am I willing for my kids to be fatherless because I am being faithful to Christ? Am I willing for them to suffer because of my Boldness, maybe, hopefully, not stupidity, right? That's powerful, isn't it? Because those are good things. Your kids, your wife, these are good, and, but if they are at the top of the list, then we've got the priorities mixed up, do you see? And it's easy to do that. Think about how we pray for our kids, how we pray for our families. I don't know, I, I, maybe it's my own struggle here, but as I reflect on the church over my growth and the became a Christian, you know, back in 1986 when Todd was out at Temple Baptist Church and was ministering at the church there. And, you know, it's part of it is that zeal you have as a new Christian. But, but then as I, as, as I went to college and all the focus on missions and going out and reaching the lost and you read things like Jim Elliott, you know, the, 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 the wonderful missionary that died at such a young age down in Ecuador and, you, you, and there was a heavy emphasis on reaching the lost and bringing the gospel to the world and yet seems like in the last 10 years, it's like we just want to survive as Christians. Maybe some, maybe it's me. Maybe, maybe it's the church. I don't know. They, but, but the priorities can shift. When did we get this idea that somehow we don't have to suffer for Christ? It's all about comfort. Which comfort, there's nothing wrong with comfort. I love to be comforted. <laughs> but do I love that more than I love Jesus? Here, these people love food. I love food. I'm a foodie. You know what I'm saying? I love it. I mean, I, I mean, man, give me some Cinco de Mayo tacos, and I'm pigging out. Let's get some enchiladas. Let's get it going. We had Cuatro de Mayo this year and Cinco de Mayo. You know what I'm saying? Let's double it up, you know? And uh, I love me some Mexican food, but, man, if that's the key priority there, you know, instead of the reaching the Hispanic people for Christ and the, the, the Hispanic people in our own country, and, and instead of thinking about the gospel, then it's become twisted. It's become twisted. So enjoy your taco while you're preaching in Morocco. Oh, wait a minute, that's one of those people. So. <laughs> ah, ah, I don't know. That, this was just powerful to me, and so I share that with you. He's confronting them, and he's showing them to work for food that doesn't perish. You know, in Isaiah 55, what a powerful passage there in the Old Testament. I was going to read this this morning, and I won't get through the whole thing, but what a powerful passage on 
uh, where the Israelites were and, and Isaiah being used by God to expose their motives. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. That sounds a little insane, doesn't it? How are you going to buy something when you have no money? And he says, you come, you come to Jesus and you buy it with his money that he gives you. And you eat, come buy wine and milk, you know, not just, not just water, but the good stuff, without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in the richest fare. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I love that. Incline your ear after all that about bread and food and wine and milk, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And do you see the switch from the physical things? He's, I'm not talking about bread and butter. I mean, I love my butter with my bread, you know. I'm talking about your soul. I'm talking about eternal life. And I, it gets a little scary. I think in, you know, PCA circles, we like, we're just kind of in, we get into our little comfort zone. And yet, you know, some of the things that the Bible clearly teaches, like your neighbor's going to hell if he's not a Christian, we forget. Instead of saying, are we weeping for the lost? Are we crying out to God for him? You know, or I pray for my family every day that they'd come to Christ, but am I doing it with the right amount of passion, you know? Or have I gotten just kind of used to it? You know, maybe they'll come to Christ, maybe. Or do I weep over them? Do I by considering their souls and not just their bellies that they would be full? May God help us to truly see what his priorities are and to work for that food which leads to eternal life or eternal things. This is the challenge of the Christian life. And you may be thinking, maybe you're not a Christian, I don't know. If you're not a Christian out there, you know, some people go to church for years. They're baptized. They, they've been in the church, but their hearts have never come to Christ. You know? I don't know. Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you grew up in the church, and maybe you just got to stir it up a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> that's what happens. God speaks to our hearts and souls, and we get shaken up in our priorities, and we say, I need, I can't do anything. I need you, Jesus. I want you more than anything else. And I suppose as I'm reflecting on this passage, leads me to my, to my final point here. My final point. The Jews ask him, well, what must we do to work the works of God, right? All right, Jesus, so you say all this stuff, and yeah, we got to do the works. We understand we got to do these good works, right? Again, he turns the table on him. How many times have you come to Jesus with a question of what and in this case, he gives them the answer, and the answer is not a what, but a who. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We come to God and say, what do I need to do, Lord? And he says, it's not about what you do, it's about who I am. That's a profound shift. Because it takes the focus off of us, because we're incapable. In fact, the good works that we do, is Isaiah says, they're filthy rags, you know? We can try, we can do all these things, but God's not impressed because they're tainted by sin. Even the best of works are tainted 
by sin. We do them with mixed motives. Not that you still shouldn't do those things, right? I mean, you don't want to push the old lady in the street. You want to walk her across. But if you're leaning on that for your salvation, it's tainted, okay? Because your motives are not always pure. I'm not, I'm not advocating violence against seniors here. That's not work because I'm getting too close. You know what I mean? All right. So the point is here that the question they ask is a valid one. What must we do? What, what do we have to do? Important, very important. I'm a, I'm a doer. That's my first time my wife would tell you. you know, I'm an ISTJ. It's all about doing, you know. And I get so wrapped up in doing them, do, 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 do. It's hard for me to sit around and just, you know, sit. I'm like, ugh. What? Mary and Martha? There's no question. You know? Get out of the way. It's we gotta do stuff. Come on, get moving. It's hard for me to hear that, but I need to hear that Jesus says it's not about doing, it's about him and what he has done. And so he says in 35, and we could get into some other stuff, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The question of what we do, and he says throughout this passage several times, and I could get into other things, that the work of God is to believe in his only begotten son. That is the work of God. That is what God requires of us. And you know, we can't even do that apart from his grace. Because faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God, and it's a gift of God. So we turn from ourselves and we say, Lord, I can't do it. I can't do anything on my own. I need you because you are the bread from heaven. And so we get back to the Old Testament there with the Jews wandering in the wilderness. Put yourself in their shoes for just a second, right? Living in tents and wondering every day, how are we going to get through this day? Is the bread going to be there? Because there's no bread in the desert, right? I mean, that's t- and no tortillas either for you Cinco de Mayo people, right? Not going to happen. No corn pancakes or whatever. Just sandwiches with sand, all right? That's, and that doesn't do it, okay? Can you imagine that, though? And every morning they have to get up. You, you, can't, you can't store it up for a rainy day because it's only good for the day except for coming up to the Sabbath, right? And every day, what do they have to do? takes care of us and he said it would be here until we no longer need it and we transfer that into what Jesus is saying and he's saying your souls need me I am the only antidote for the sickness you have way beyond cancer deadness of the soul deadness that leads to eternal death And yet Jesus comes in and says, that deadness I can bring to life by my spirit, by my presence as the bread of life, as the bread come down from heaven, that when you eat this bread, this bread, by the way, that is broken for us, this bread, this man who would die at the cross for us, 
and shed his blood. That is the antidote for our sins. That is what we need. So you come to Jesus with questions. I come to Jesus with questions. And he turns the table on us and he says, let's get back to what you really need. Eternal life in me. And what a wonderful thing as we reflect on that. Because, you know, God doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just leave it there and say, I give you myself. And you all know that, right? But you need to be stirred up. We all need to be stirred up and reminded of these things. That's what we come for. The Spirit to work in our hearts and make these things more real and profound. We know that. But now it becomes more than just the word preached. We transition to the visible word. This word that has been preached about Jesus being the bread of life is as real as that bread on that table there. As that wine in those cups, as sure as that wine, we drink it, Jesus' blood was shed for us. And as sure as all that is true, we get to celebrate in just a moment. Jesus came out of that tomb, didn't he? Notice this morning I'm wearing the liturgical colors, and you're saying, oh, Presbyterian, what are you doing in a PCA church? And they're white because we're still in the season of Easter. We're still celebrating the resurrection of Christ. That changes everything. And so I get back to our point at the beginning. Jesus is trustworthy. He is the only one who can deal with the true needs that we have. He is the truly, truly, and truly, 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 Holy, holy, holy. He is the one. He is the I am. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these beloved brothers and sisters and for the honor of being here with them this morning. Thank you for your holy word. The word of God. And we pray you would work it into our souls. Forgive us, Lord, for taking it for granted. Forgive us for sins that we might have committed in our hearts where we neglected you and not treated you as you were worthy to be treated as the Savior, the Great One, the One who came to grant us eternal life. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for being the bread of life. We praise you that you are greater than the manna on the ground. You are the provision for our souls. There is no one who could do what you did, for there is no one but you who is the living God. And so we praise you this morning and we pray that we might fall in love with you again, all over again, as we turn our hearts now to the Lord's Supper. Remind us of your great love. Work it into our hearts that we might live for glorifying you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.